0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Zach Kesson. Zach, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself?
1: Okay, so I've been building web apps literally since forever. I think the first web app I ever wrote was in Perl version 4 with MSQL, somewhere around 1993 or 94, so it's 20 years now. In that time, I've moved from... Perl to PHP to JavaScript back to PHP back to JavaScript to CoffeeScript to Erlang with bits of scheme and a few other things thrown in there for good measure. I first discovered functional programming for real when I got to college in 1991 and was hit with structure and interpretation of computer programs by Abelson and Sussman, one of the great computer science textbooks of all time. If you've never read it, go read it. Like, really, go read it. Come back when you're done. Well, all right, finish this podcast, then go read it. And about three, four years ago, I was working in PHP, and I was unhappy. And I, was, I had just finished my book on a book on HTML5 for O'Reilly, uh, Programming HTML5 Applications. It's got a bird on the cover. And then I was looking to get away from PHP, because honestly, I really didn't like it very much. The problem is in Tel Aviv, where I live, or where I was working, I live outside of Tel Aviv. Once you do PHP, that's like the, all they'll send you, the only jobs you can talk, will talk to you are more PHP jobs. So I started looking and I looked at Node.js and I was impressed for a little while and then I wasn't. Then I looked at Haskell and I took, took at Scala and sort of was dabbling through languages and I hit on Erlang. And I was trying to figure out how to build a web service in it and I couldn't figure that out easily. And I said to Simon St. Lawrence, my, who was then my editor at O'Reilly, and I said, I can't figure this out. Let's write a book about it so everybody else can figure it out. Or at least they can benefit from, you know, my I can do the work for everybody. And it's worked out pretty well. It sold quite well. And that's how I got into Erlang. And then once I did that, I started playing with the ideas about testing Erlang. And I've been a big podcast fan for many years. My first real job in Israel about, oh, seven, eight years ago now, was I was working at this company in Tel Aviv, and I was living in this tiny little place. And I didn't have a car. And the only way I could get to Tel Aviv was take a bus. And this particular bus took about two hours and change each way. Not recommended. Don't do that. Really, don't do that. It'll make you miserable. But I started listening to podcasts because I had to pass the time somewhere, and I'm not one of those people who can read on a bus particularly. I think I also watched all the Firefly on the bus at least twice. So I started listening to podcasts, and I get into podcasting. First podcast I did was I did a couple episodes of 365 Days of Astronomy. A couple of them were on calendars and teaching kids interested in science and stuff. Things like that. And then last... I wanted to start a podcast for a while, and I was getting more involved in Erlang, and I decided last winter sometime to just start a podcast about Erlang, and I called it Mostly Erlang because I wanted an excuse to be able to jump into another language from time to time. We've had episodes on F-Sharp and Haskell so far, and I'm sure we'll do more episodes on other functional time, which is OCaml or closure or what have you in the future, it just hasn't come up yet. But yeah, that's sort of how I got here, sort of roundabout route. More companies than I can shake a stick at, I've worked for. Lived and worked in three countries, you know, it's all good.
0: That's kind of the same way of me being interested in podcasting was I had heard some quotes from motivational speaker Zig Ziglar, where he was talking about automobile university where if you've got all this time on a commute, it could be wasted time. So I found a bunch of podcasts.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. There's actually one of the podcasts I really enjoyed in terms of education was an astronomy podcast from Ohio, a professor at Ohio State University, and he basically just clipped a microphone on his lapel as he gave his lectures. He was teaching, you know, freshman, various sort of freshman astronomy type classes, and he started recording them as podcasts, and I, I mean, he was intending them not for the outer side world, just for his own students. I guess he figured, you know, they'd use them to review if they missed a day of class or wanted to, you know, review for the final exam or something like that. And then was actually legitimately surprised when random strangers from over the internet who've never been to Ohio in many cases started emailing him saying how much they liked his podcast. And, you know, so, so, so his name is Richard Pogi. I'll, I'll give you the link. He did three different classes, two of them twice. The first one was on, you know, sort of history of astronomy and then sort of the galaxy and the sort of large Milky Way and stuff like that. The second one was on sort of the solar system. That's the one that had history of astronomy. And then the third one was on was basically an introduction to exobiology and the search for life in the solar system and beyond the solar system and what do we think that entails. They're very good. I mean, or the first one was done like in 2006 or 2005 or something, so it's a, there are a few things in there that are probably out of date, but mostly it's pretty, you know, mostly not. So, yeah, he's really good. Yeah, and there's just a lot of interesting content. The hard part is you get some podcasts like who pod fade and then they produce a couple podcasts and then sort of go away, uh, which is occasionally frustrating.
0: Yeah, so... I did find your Mostly Erlang podcast right around the time it started. I don't know if I caught the first episode as you published it or right around that time Yeah, because you were on JavaScript Jabber.
1: Yeah, I was like three or four episodes in.
0: Yeah, I got your reference there and went back and caught up on them and wanted to get you on to talk about Erlang and what you've learned a little bit with that podcast and your experience with your books.
1: Yeah, well, Chuck, who does Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber and a bunch of others, the Freelancers show, is a friend, so when I started, he gave me a lot of good advice. And actually, he's been on my podcast in an episode that is recorded, but not yet edited or broadcast. The new to Erlang episode. Yeah, I think the best advice you can give for podcasting is just get interesting people on. Let people be interesting and keep it reasonably consistent. You know, you're going to miss weeks, but at least try to be semi-regular. And, you know, audiences grow. It happens. The other thing I tend to do is I tend to tweet a lot. If you follow me on Twitter or follow the show on Twitter, you'll get references to old shows tweeted regularly because I figure people haven't heard, necessarily heard the ones I did eight months ago. But for the most part, they're still perfectly useful and valid. I mean, even if somebody put out a new version, the basis of Zotonic hasn't changed. You know, that was episode six or seven or something. You know, Even if they may have put out a few minor version changes, the basis of what they said it's basically the same.
0: I was going to ask you, for those who are unfamiliar with Erlang, can you give a little description for anybody who's coming in but hasn't dealt with Erlang specifically?
1: Sure. Erlang was a language that was created to solve a very specific problem. It was created by a couple guys, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, Mike Williams, and so on, at Ericsson, which is a telephone company back in the 80s. In Ericsson, they were trying to figure out how to program a telephone switch. Now, telephone switches are one of those things that you kind of, unless you Work with them for a living, which I don't. You kind of don't think about. They're just sort of there. But they have very specific requirements that they have to handle lots of concurrent activity, lots of phone calls. They have to run 24 hours a day, seven days a week without interruption. You know, they can't take down half an entire neighborhood's telephones when you want to fix a bug. You can't drop calls. You got to, you know, all these things. So it has a lot of properties that the telecom guys solved back in the late 80s, early 90s that us web guys are solving now. You know, how do you deal with massive concurrency how do you deal with the fact that yeah hardware is going to fail on you so these they solved all these problems 20 years ago you know for all that whatsapp does you know bazillion things erlang runs 40 percent of the world's mobile telecom so if you've ever used a mobile phone and i'm assuming that's everybody who's listening to a podcast some part of it went over an erlang based route switch at some point almost certainly so that's it on on sort of that side is you know why is it's because the telecom guys hit what we call web scale now 15, 20 years ago, and they solved most of the problems. So we're coming up and going, wow, we're doing this huge scale of, you know, and the telecom guys are looking at us going, yeah, we did that 20 years ago. What's the big deal? You know, we were doing that on a, you know, a sun with, you know, 16 megabytes of memory, not on, you know, a server with 16 terabytes of memory. All right. That's probably an exaggeration. So that's one part of it. Sort of really the appeals to me. It has a very simple programming model in Erlang. It's basically, it falls under the general rubric of what's called the actor model. Unfortunately, I find the term actor model is at some point so vague that, you know, encompasses so many things that it's kind of almost meaningless. What it really means is that you have a bunch of processes that do not share memory by default and that communicate by sending each other messages and that are well isolated. So if one process dies it doesn't affect everything else around it so that you have lots of processes. And the processes in Erlang are very lightweight. An Erlang process takes, I think it's about a kilobyte of memory. I don't remember, but it's something in that range. So you can do things like have a web server that just creates a process for every user or for every message going through a chat server. Somebody told me they were using a Raspberry Pi board when I was little $35 Teach Kids to Program embedded things, and they were able to crank up 100,000 Erlang processes on it. Now this is not you know a high-end workstation. This is a Raspberry Pi. It costs thirty-five bucks, not including the power supply, I think. But you know, it's thirty-five dollars. You can run a hundred thousand processes on it.
0: The USB and the wall work cost cost as much cost as, as much as the cable, <laughs> as the machine itself. <laughs> yeah,
1: probably. The other two very important parts of Erlang that people talk th- about the language having Erlang-like semantics, in air quotes. One of the things they generally miss is the way Erlang does error handling. Usually. I mean, you you can do a try-catch if you want to, but generally it's a bad idea, is there's a semantics of links and monitors between processes. So if you have two processes that are connected in some way, you can set up a link where when one process dies, the other one will either be killed automatically or receive a notification of when that's happening. So that, and, and whether or not it's killed or received, or just given a notification, depends on how you set it up and what you want to do. And... That second process does not actually have to be on the same physical computer. So you can have two nodes, A and B, that are two physical pieces of hardware sitting next to each other, and when node A dies, you know, somebody, I don't know, somebody trips over the power cable, let's just say, right? The computer goes away. It's off. It can't fix that problem by itself. It's turned off. It's dead. Right? Yeah. So node B has to be able to say, oh, I'm going to take over from node A and keep going. Erlang provides you a lot of the semantics to do that, where you can have these monitors between processes between the two computers. So you have a worker on node A and a supervisoring process on node B that's simply monitoring node A, and when that process goes away for any reason, it'll just take some action, which might be restarted or not, depending on what specifically it is. And that's kind of a neat feature that, Basically, you can set up failover for a process, for an application between two computers. It doesn't, it requires about three lines of code in a config file. That's it. Where you can have an entire set of process applications that, yeah. Oh, look, my, my AWS, my instance just died. Oh, another one, you know, and things are just going to come right back recoverance, you know, within a, a few milliseconds. It's a pretty cool system so that you can actually have that notification. And furthermore, in general, Erlang has a system, a library called OTP, which stands for the Open Telecom Platform. It's not really just for telecom. A lot of people think, well, I'm not doing telecom, so I don't need OTP. Well, It's not really to do. With- it has about as much to do with telecom as Ruby on Rails has to do with, with Amtrak. You know, <laughs> it's just a name. It's called telecom because, it, well, er- 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 Ericsson's in the telecom business. And it's called Open because that was a big concept in Ericsson back in the day or so, I'm told by friends of mine who worked there at the time but OTP has a bunch of what are called behaviors that you if you're a java programmer you sort of think of it as an interface it's not exactly the same thing but close enough where basically the generic part of a system is written for you and you just have to write your custom one and the most common one you use is gen server which is basically just a process that sits there responding to requests and to write a gen server you just you fill in six or seven functions and emacs will generate the co- all the code for you or the structure and then the other one is a supervisor, which is, gives you that beha- that restarting behavior I mentioned earlier, where you have a process that runs and it does something. So maybe it's responding to web requests or sending emails or, you know, it's doing whatever it's doing, caching information for you or something. And if it dies, you have a supervisor and the supervisor says, you know, all right, if this process exits, I should restart it. Or maybe it's actually a better, better example. Maybe it's connecting to your database. Let's say you have Riac which is written in Erlang, but that's irrelevant for this conversation. You have a RIAC cluster, and you say you have six physical machines. And your application is sitting on another node, and it's talking to one of those six RIAC nodes. And let's just say the RIAC node itself goes down for some reason. Again, somebody tripped over the power supply. What will happen is, presumably, you'll have a process that connects to the RIAC node. It will crash, because it's now connected to a node that's not there. The supervisor will say, oh, look, that crashed, and restart it. Well, if you set up you start your process correctly, you know, your that process that does that, you probably give it a list of all the RIAC nodes. So when it comes back up, it'll just connect to a different one. So now your database connection has been down for, I don't know, a few milliseconds, and everything's back to normal.
0: Yeah, that's one of the nice things that I've seen with starting to play with Erlang is some of that. But it's, there's also the trick of figuring out where those restart boundaries lie.
1: Yes, it is a bit of an art. The other thing is, like, I had one example for, so it didn't work for a client. We were using Redis for something. And as an experiment, we created a pool of processes connected to the Redis server. And it was the Redis was running on, a, this is just for testing purposes, was running on a virtual machine. And I killed the VM. So all those processes died. Supervisor restarts them. They try to connect. They fail. They don't, they can't, they die again. Repeat. And then I restart the thing. And as soon as the Redis server comes back online, they all reconnect. You know, as soon as they can. Now, eventually, depending on how you configure things, when those services die and restart, you can say, okay, if you, it restarts more than, I don't know, X times per you know unit time. So more than, I don't know, let's say 10 times in a minute. Then the supervisor dies and its supervisor can take an action, which, you know, eventually probably comes down to page somebody, something's gone horribly wrong. But the idea of this is that you basically want to isolate faults into as small a unit as possible and provide a way for the system to recover or at least operate you know, in a slightly degraded state when you're missing some resource. It actually works pretty well. It's a little crazy, but it does work. It works actually to the extent that the uh, AXD301 switch, which was the first major Erlang project, had about a million lines of Erlang code in it. British Telecom apparently achieved nine nines of reliability in the field, which is about 31 milliseconds of downtime in a year. Apparently there was a memo written by somebody saying the maintenance people were forgetting how their skills were getting rusty because they didn't have a they didn't actually need to fix anything it just kept running you know I mean it's like this is the thing you want is like, you want your ops guys to be bored
0: the supervisor trees were interesting because from a try catch perspective when you throw it winds up bubbling up the chain until you yeah. have someone who knows how to handle that right but with the supervisor chain you're like we'll just keep crashing the processes until we get to until we get to someone who knows how to handle it and then restart that whole thing
1: the, but the nice below thing this. the nice thing about it is first of all you know problem with try there are a couple of problems with try catches first of all they you know a lot of times in C++ or Java 25% of your code base is the catch and now what happens if you have a bug in your catch code cuz don't tell me there's no bugs there not to mention you have to think of every possible thing that can go wrong not just in your code but everything is connected to you know if your code connects to the database and the database goes offline for a minute, what then? When we move from C and C++ to languages like Java or Lisp, you don't usually add garbage collection. Well, to be fair, Lisp predates C by a long time, but that's besides the point. But you add garbage collection, and suddenly the work of memory management is mostly, at least, taken out of the concerns of the developer. I mean, you can't totally ignore it, but you don't have to worry about it. You you don't have to worry about making sure you deallocate every byte you allocated or you have weird memory leaks. Which is nice because, you know, honestly, memory management is not a feature most of our customers care about. They just want their features to work. So this is sending the same deal where you've you moved some of the error handling out. Erlang code sends about 1% error handling versus 25% for some other languages. So by, you know, all right, great. That's a whole bunch of code that I didn't have to write. It doesn't have bugs in it. You know, that's, that's one of the other things I like with the language. Another, there are a bunch of things I like with the language.
0: It's also got a strong Prolog
1: background. It does have a strong Prolog, so it gets the pattern matching as well. The pattern right? matching, although it doesn't it doesn't have the unification that Prolog has. Although, actually, if you wanted to run Prolog in the Erlang virtual machine, Robert Verding has an implementation called Erlog that does that. I think he's got an implementation of almost
0: everything. Yeah, mean. probably
1: he he's got one of Lua. He's there's two Lisps and a Scheme on the Erlang VM. There's Elixir, which is sort of a Rubyish thing. There's Django templates. There's lots of other things. So you you can do stuff. The other thing I was going to say is Erlang has was it started out as an industrial language. It started out by you know people at Ericsson, who were trying to build product. You know they, these were engineers who were trying to build phone switches because that's what Ericsson you know that's their product line. They build phone switches. I once had somebody online tell me that they thought Erlang wasn't good for shipping products. I laughed at them. It's like, dude, it was invented by telecom engineers. But I digress. It has also become, for reasons that I'm not sure why, although I'm happy about it, very much a research language, mostly in Europe, not in the U.S., but there are definitely research groups doing academic computer science research on Erlang at University of Kent, Uppsala University in Sweden, National Technical Technical University of Athens. There's a group in Budapest, I think. A couple others around Britain. University of Glasgow, I think. Chalmers University in Sweden. There's some others I'm forgetting. So there's some very serious research going on. And the nice thing is that a lot of this research feeds back into the community of practitioners. So you have tools like Dialyzer, which is, comes out of Uppsala and, and Athens, from Kostas Sagonis' group, which is basically it's a static analysis and type checker for Erlang. Erlang is, unlike, say, Haskell, Erlang is a dynamically typed language that does not, you know, you don't traditionally in Erlang have type inferences or the real strong conception of types that you'd have in an a, ML or a Haskell, or even a Java, it has been retrofitted in in a very interesting way, but it's optional, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I've seen, again, playing a little bit with it, I've seen that. I know some other languages have started to retrofit the optionality of that. And Dialyzer lets you define your structures as to what it would be and and then hurt your feelings.
1: Yes, very much. Dialyzer is a static analysis tool. It's wonderful. It will hurt your feelings if you have any problems in your code, it will probably find them. But if you ever try to do, like, integration testing, you know, let's say you have a project of 40 or 50 or 60 Erlang modules or more, you know, you could have half a million lines of code if, you know, you have a big team. And how do you make sure that, you know, the thing over here, calling that thing over there, all everything is consistent and the return values and everything like that. So basically it's this tool. It's just I don't really know how it works internally. It's sort of a big constraint problem. It figures it out, and now you can hint it and say, "Okay, you know this is takes input of this kind, this you know this type it returns that type." Although even if you don't, it'll still it can still work it out. Although it's not quite as effective. But it's really nice. So it's like, if you have a function that's requesting an integer as a parameter over here, and you're sending it a string over there, and you know, let's say it's a piece of code that doesn't get run very much. You know, maybe your tests don't find it, but Dialyzer will every time. I use it as part of my continuous integration system. It runs the unit tests. It runs the properties. It, property-based testing. It runs Dialyzer. And if Dialyzer doesn't pass, it's, you know, a failed build just as much as a unit test failing. Possibly more so. Well, I mean, all right. Failed build is it's a binary thing, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah.
0: You also mentioned the uh, property t- testing.
1: Yeah, so property-based testing is um, another thing. Um, there's two t- There's two tools for it, basically. There's actually a third, but two main ones. There's QuickCheck, which is out of a company called Quivic, and it's commercial. they That's based on the Chalmers Group. And then Costas, who wrote Dialyzer, wrote a proper, and some of his students wrote a project called Proper, which is what I've been using for the Chicago Boss Framework, which is what I'm doing. So if you've written a unit test, you know, you'll know you know. Let's say you have a program called Add. It takes two numbers, and you add them, right? Real boring. Or let's say, better yet, it takes a list of numbers and adds them, okay? So... What you can say in property-based testing is you can miss properties of the thing. So, for example, the simplest property you could say is you get, you give it a list of numbers in, and you should always get a number out. You know, you'll never get, I don't know, something else out, a string or something. What you do is you then generate, normally a hundred, although you can adjust that, random cases where it will try them all. It'll just generate a hundred test cases where it's got a list of numbers. Sometimes it'll be one number. Sometimes it'll be fifty numbers or a thousand numbers. Now, addition isn't a good example here in this case, but, you know, let's just say you had a case that the property failed, you know, there's a bug in your code
0: I've heard some examples of things like sorting a list or reversing the list and things like that. Right. right.
1: Well, a good example would be, let's say you have an item, your function is remove item from list. You have a list of integers, right? As your list is a list of integers, you want to remove an item from it. So it'll, it'll generate a list of integers and it'll pick one and remove it. Now, let's just say you, you sort of do the, the stupid implementation of removing a list. You just tootle down the list until you find the first instance of that number and then delete it, right? All right, so now your property is after you've applied the remove from list function to the list, the new list, the resulting list, should not have that element in it. Well, what happens if that element showed up twice in the list, right? Now, if you're writing a unit test, you might not think of that, right? Maybe it doesn't, you just don't think of it. So it'll start generating random lists. Now chances are it'll you know, come with the list. Let's just say the number the element you're gonna remove is the number twelve. Or better yeah, the number forty-two. Checkers reference going on here. You're gonna remove the number forty-two. Well, what if your list has the number forty-two in it twice? Again, you're gonna remove the first one, but it's still there. So it's gonna generate a list. Then chances are you're gonna generate randomly a list, and maybe it's gonna have seventy-five elements in it, and you know the fifteenth and the thirty-seventh will both be the number forty-two. Now, if I show you that list of 75 elements, you're going to look at and go, I don't know what it's showing me here, right? It's a list of 75 elements. It's not going to be obvious. So what it'll do is what's called shrinking. And shrinking is just what it sounds like it is. It'll take that list and start simplifying it as much as it can until it comes down to the simplest list you can find that'll still demonstrate the bug, which would be just the list of, you know, the number 42 twice, presumably. Now, if I, you see that, you can go, Oh yeah, that's pretty obvious. You go fix your code. So in other case, let's go back to our, Let's say you have a list of integers, and you're going to add them. Don't try this with floating point numbers, by the way. In theory, it should work, but in practice, with the way IEEE floats work, it probably won't. One of the properties of addition is, of course, addition is communicative. If you take a list of integers, add them, take the same list, shuffle it into a random order, and add them again, the two operations should always produce the same result, right? Yeah. it's sort of basic math. Okay, so that's a good property you could have for your operation. Now, for addition, it's not real exciting, but you can think of other cases where, you know, if you want to prove if you want to demonstrate sufficiently that an operation is commutative, you know, you could imagine having some variant of that concept where you know you're gonna come up with a list of operations, shuffle them into a different order, and then run them again. Do that a hundred or a thousand times. Chances are if there's some weird corner case where, yeah, it's gonna fail, you'll find it. So that's the sort of the short version of property based testing, and you can do a lot more. But it is in some, in many ways, much more powerful. I think the unit tests. It's also, however, I think it's got a larger learning curve, and I'm not real good at it yet.
0: Yeah, that's what I've heard about those kinds of checkers. Is it takes takes a while to be able to understand and think about what properties would actually hold true for what you're trying to test. Right
1: now, with conquer, with con- with proper, not conquer, conquer there's another thing from Costas's group. You can use the type specs for dialyzer to drive your tests. So if you if your spec. It says, all right, I expected this to go in and that to go out, it will often, it can often just generate based on the types and do useful things that way. I've been using that. In the, I, I, one of the things I do is I maintain the Chicago, my day job is I maintain the open source framework, Chicago WAS. and I've been adding those in in all sorts of interesting places using that exact property. Yeah, Costas's group, and I'm, I'm not going to stop talking about it now, but they've had a lot of other tools that they've developed or are working on. They've been on two episodes of mostly Erlang, 16, which came out a while ago, and 27, which should come out in the next before this episode does. So, But they also have Conqueror, which is another interesting thing. I'll just talk about this briefly. Which is, if you have multiple processes, the order in which things happen is unpredictable. In fact, the number of possible orderings is seriously exponential. Now, Erlang reduces this, but doesn't eliminate entirely the possibility of what happens if you hit some weird ordering bugs. So they've developed a tool that'll try, let you try out every possible order and reproduce the ones that cause errors. So that's a tool called Conqueror. There was a talk at a Erline user conference last year. And they're working on even more cool stuff. Those guys just come up with like really awesome testing tools on a regular basis. You know, it's like one that comes out every year or two. I think it's every time Costas gets a new grad student in this group.
0: Sounds like something we'll need to definitely post in the show notes of a list of all their projects so people can follow along and see yeah, they're also, all the different ideas.
1: They're also, I'm working on a book called Testing Erlang. You can find it on GitHub. It'll be published by O'Reilly eventually, but for right now, it's just on, it'll, it's also free to read on GitHub. Open source books. Yay. Figure, you know, people are going to buy, it, are going to buy it. The cheapskates will just braid it for free on Erlang. So, you know, all of these are going to be documented in there. You know, there's a lot of other people doing research on Erlang. The other thing is that, as people know, the Moore's Law free lunch ended about a decade ago. The computer we we have now, are running at about the same clock speed as the ones we did eight ten years ago, right? We just have more cores, and I mean, the last couple of generations of Intel chips. I don't know how much faster they even got. I think they just, you know, reduced power usage, which is, you know, a good thing on a general sense, but it doesn't help my code run faster. On the flip side, if you have the cash to spend, you can run, you can buy, you know, the latest top-end Xeon chips from Intel. I have twelve cores running two threads each. So, you know, you put four of those on a motherboard, and that's, you know, almost a 100 threads on one motherboard. I mean, all right, that system's going to run 30,000 bucks or something, and you might be better off putting some more, smaller computers, but that's that's a separate argument. Omdel's law is going to bite you on this one. You need a way to, if you're sharing mutable state and putting locks around it, you're going to end up basically have half the processes just sort of deadlocking as they wait for locks, which is a problem, and the core count is only going to increase. You know, you have Tylera boards that have 60 or 80 cores in one chip. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if our servers in 10 years, the individual cores are, you know, running at 100, uh, 500 megahertz each instead of the current 4 gigahertz. But instead of having 12 of them, or effectively 24 per chip, you have, I don't know, 256 or something. And you can imagine if you have the programming technology having 256 or 1,000 processors, even if they're slowish, on one chip is going to give you a hell of a lot of processing power, right?
0: Yeah, as long as you can, you aren't constrained to doing one
1: thing at a time. Right, you just need to be able to push. I mean, this is how video cards work now, is you can push a lot of data through them, and I'm not an expert. Although I I can point out some people you should get on your show who who research this, who do research on megacores. it's called. We're trying to figure out how do you program this thing. How do you program when you have a thousand cores on one chip? I don't know. I think that's an area, it's an ongoing area of research. Huh? Uh, I, I you know, Kevin Hammond, who's been on from the University of St Andrews, has been on my show a couple times. This is what he does for a living: is he figures this stuff out. So, you know, I think this is the real argument for Erlang: is that trying to do shared memory concurrency with locks, all la Java and C Sharp, it really doesn't scale. It works when you have two processors. Sort of. When you start going into 20 or 30, it just turns into a mess and you get too many weird highs and bugs where, you know, somebody deadlocked, a process died when it was holding a lock. Somebody applied the locks in the wrong order. It's a really a very kludgy system of doing it. Or you start to just serialize everything when you have, you know, 64 processors running, but two of them are running at full speed and the other 62 are sitting there going, hey, I'm, I'm not doing anything. I'm bored. Give me something to do. And I think Erlang will be, maybe not the ultimate way we solve this problem. I think the Haskell guys have some really interesting stuff going on too in this front. But I think it's something that's, you know, going to be a real solution where, yeah, this is a problem that was solved and that we're going to say, okay, fine, you're going to have a thousand, you know, we're going to have a thousand cores on our desktop soon enough, or at least in our servers, if not in our desktop. And it requires the next generation of programming and things like immutability, which we haven't talked about, are, I think, key here. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to touch on the immutability aspect of Erlang? Sure. So for a bunch of reasons, Erlang data structures are immutable, basically changed by copying or by recursion. Now, there are a couple of advantages to this. First of all, when you have a closure in Erlang, you can't, data can't change out. What are you, you can create a closure in Erlang just like you can create a closure in JavaScript or Lisp or whatever. But since all the data is immutable, you can just package it up and send it over the wire. So I can create a closure on node 1 and send it off to node 2. The other thing is, when I talk about the evils of sharing mutable state, mostly Erlang processes don't share state. But if you have a large data structure, presumably like a large piece of binary, which could be like an HTML template, you know, a template or something, you can actually share those binaries between processes. Why? Well, they're not mutable. You can't change them. So what order processes refer to them doesn't matter because they don't change, right? You know, it's just we all agree not to change it. So that's, there's some really good talks about this on InfoQ. Look for anything by Joe Armstrong or Francesco Cesarini or some of the others. And also some of the academic stuff from Kevin Hammond, from Costas' group, some of the others. Also from the Haskell guys, Simon Peyton jones who's Microsoft Research in Cambridge, is a very, he's one of the Haskell guys and really, really gets a lot of start. There's actually a really good talk. You see him and Joe Armstrong sort of discussing comparative language how Erlang and Haskell hit on some of the same ideas from some of the same people. You know, they came from different backgrounds. Haskell Haskell started out by academics. There was a bunch of university guys in the late 80s who were all doing sort of similar stuff. And they decided it would be easier to share a programming language that would let them all do their research. Whereas Erlang started with a bunch of guys in a company who were trying to ship product. They were trying to get something out, you know, get a telephone switch out the door under, you know, the constraints under which a telephone switch has to operate, you know, which is it can't have more than a few minutes of downtime per year because, you know, when you pick up your telephone, you expect it's going to actually just work.
0: Yeah, when you're calling emergency services, you don't want to find that your phone lines are down.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, in many cases, that property of it just work has, you know, had or has, at least in the United States, for a long time on landlines, although they're starting to strip these protections out, a bad idea. but That's a different conversation, probably a different podcast. But a lot of times it had legal regulatory rules behind it. The government told the phone company, no, you have to provide everybody with access to a telephone for a reasonable rate. And, you know, it has to work. Because when they pick up the phone and dial 911, they got to have a dial tone. You know, the other thing is like, if you live in large parts of the rural United States, to be blunt, if you live in the middle of nowhere, it would not be profitable. It's not at all profitable, I suspect, for the telephone company to give you service. Because they got to run, you know, 20 miles of line, just so like two farms in the middle of nowhere. There's no way they make up their money, but, you know, they do it because the government tells them they have to. And, you know, I I think we've sort of, I I think that's a good thing that, I mean, I'm all for free markets, but I'm also think that certain services, you know, need to be accessible to everybody. But but that's a separate, you know, again, a separate conversation. So I I think that a lot of this culture of, yeah, we got to make it reliable, you know, happened from telecom people who... We're told, okay, if you if you want us to buy your phone switch, it has to meet these regulations that are set up by, you know, the FCC or the Canadian or British or whoever, whatever equivalent in whatever country you're talking about. These are the rules it has to follow or we can't buy it. So I think that it can provide some serious engineering incentives to get it right. So, yeah.
0: And with that immutability, there's almost a concept of no assignment inside of Erlang, correct? It's just pretty much pattern matching, in which the pattern actually default gets assigned
1: to it, right? Yeah, basically there is assignment, but there's not destructive assignment, so once you've assigned a variable, it stays assigned, at least for the scope. In most languages, in Java or C Sharp or Ruby or whatever, you know, you, you can increment a variable or, you know, add to a buffer or whatever. In Erlang, no, no, you just need to create a new variable, which is occasionally leads to some ugly code, and there's some solutions to that. But yeah, it's Once you assign it, it's done. The great advantage of this when you're trying to debug some code is, you know, if your variable has a funny value in it, you know where that value came from because it can only come from one place. It makes debugging much easier. X shouldn't have this value. Well, it came from here. X is assigned here. That's where the funny value had to come from. Off you go. It also has some, by the way, some really nice tools for interacting with the runtime. You know, if you want to find out, you want to profile running code or trace running code or Check out the coverage of, you know, okay, you may have, you know, say, all right, I want code coverage for my unit tests, which you can do by default. You can see which lines of code are covered how many times, you can also want to, might want to do that for running code. All right, this web request comes in. I want to see which lines in this file get executed by this web request. Well, you just turn on the coverage, you know, go into the cover module, cover compiled. It's one line. You make your request. You turn that off and you print out the result, and it'll put out in several formats, one of which is HTML and it gives you a line. There's actually a guy at University of, I want to say Sheffield in England, created a new tool version of it called Smother, which lets you do it, not line by line, but you can test for every conditional. So if you have, you know, a conditional, if A and B, you can test every, it'll show you every variant. I haven't played with it yet in depth, but it gives you much more detail. Something DC, this isn't a technical term, I don't remember what it's called, but certain things like aerospace actually require that level of coverage analysis. So, I haven't, you know, I haven't needed it yet, but yeah, it's useful where you can do, you can turn all these things on and you can profile your code in real time. So if you want to know why your things are running slowly, you got a profile tool. It'll just tell you in way too much detail, which is really nice because sometimes it's like, hold on, why is that, that web request taking so long? It shouldn't take seven milliseconds. All right, I'm going to go profile. it. Oh, look, it's doing this. Oh, tweak, tweak, tweak. Oh, now it takes three. Good. I'm good. Three is good. A web machine, which is one of my favorite Erlang projects, so I'm not using everything right now. It basically presents a web request as a giant finite state machine. It's from Basho. Unless you do very simply, you get very a very elegant, semantically correct HTTP request. But it's also, if you set it up right, very fast. The startup I used to work for, we did our APIs through a web machine, and the data was mostly in memory caches of various forms. Our most important API call, the one that you know was the business, basically the sort of mean response time was four point five milliseconds on that, which is pretty nice. When, you know, your your system is saying, oh, yeah, we responded in 4.5 milliseconds. Okay, fine. That's good. Four and a half is good. Had the company, you know, not shut its doors, I at some point probably would have... I'm sure there were some bottlenecks we would have hit as we scaled. They never got there. But I'm sure we would have continued to optimize that to the point where we were down at 1.2 milliseconds average or something. The web machine reporting only goes to the the millisecond level. You you can't do tenths of milliseconds in their logs, unfortunately. But if you get enough requests, you could still, you know, you, know, you can still see what the, the average obviously doesn't have to be a full integer. But the other thing is, since everything's compiled and in memory already, and since the processes are so lightweight, you can often get very, very fast responses compared to a lot of other technologies. And one of my criticisms of Node.js, of which I have many, but I won't get into them, is that they say, well, you know, creating a Unix process is very expensive, so we're just going to never do it and make the programmer do a lot of extra work in terms of managing callbacks and stuff and spaghetti code. The Erlang response to that is, Unix processes are very heavy, so we'll just create lightweight processes. You know, a Unix process or a Java thread takes about a, about a megabyte of memory before you even do anything. As I said earlier, an Erlang process takes, you know, 800 bytes or a kilobyte. So, yeah, they're really cheap. You create a lot of them. You know, you can create a, I could probably create 2 million of them on my, uh, my workstation here, which is an AMD, couple-year-old three-core AMD system. It's no great shakes. You know, it does have 16 gigs of RAM in it, but it's otherwise not that exciting. Whereas if I tried to create a million Java processes on this, it wouldn't work. It'd probably catch on fire or something. So I'm not going to try that.
0: I've heard the web machine is nice, even if you don't use Erling, to go check out because they've got a great diagram that helps you understand how HTTP works.
1: Yes, the web machine diagram, um, actually our, po- our second podcast in Most was on web machine, and Justin Sheehy from Batch Show was on that one, and he actually created the di- diagram in question. You should put the diagram in the show notes, by the way. Yeah, I was finding on it after that discussion. And there was Simon St. Lawrence, who's my editor at O'Reilly, or former editor at O'Reilly, said, and he's been working with HTTP for years, said he learned a lot about HTTP just by looking at the diagram. One thing I keep meaning to do, although I haven't done it yet, is take the diagram down to a print shop and get it printed up in, you know. A3 size, which for you Americans who use funny imperial units, is sort of, you know, it's like an 11 by 17 or something. I don't remember. It's sort of a large, smallish poster. And yet it prints it up probably in a laminated form so I can write on it with whiteboards. And then put it on my wall. Oh, the other cool thing is you don't want to do this in production because it really slows it down. But in a web machine request, you have that diagram. And if you don't look at the diagram, basically what you have is this big, finite state machine. And at every inflection point, it calls usually calls a function or possibly several, you can turn on tracing. And what tracing does is it, for every function, it, it draws out on that diagram what path your request took through the diagram and what functions were called at each point and what inputs and outputs they had. It doesn't include timing, which I would always wanted, but maybe in a future version. So that's really nice because then you can see, oh, look, this process did this. I got a thus-and-such error code, response code, and I expected, you know, I got a 410 and I expected a this. And you can see, oh, look, this responded this way, and oh, that went over there. And, and then you can understand, really understand what your code is doing. It's really very nice. I'm right now working with Chicago Boss, and one of the things on my sort of low-level to-do list is hook up the Boss DB models to WebMachine. So you can basically just say, okay, here's WebMachine, here's the request, you know, the interfaces I want it to handle. Here's a model, go to, it. and then, you know, it'll just do the right thing with the model. You don't have to write any code. You're done. I'm big on not writing code. I like code I don't have to write. It doesn't have bugs in it. I don't have to write it. I don't have to put time on it. I don't have to debug it. I don't have to test it. Yeah, the web
0: machine tracing seems like it could be something if you could turn it on at a request level of... I'm gonna, I found this request in a log and something happened. But now I want to pass in with a debug parameter in which I can set that flag under the cover for debugging purposes and
1: be able to get that generated somewhere. Probably can. Uh, Yeah, you could do that. Well, you could hack it to do that. Basically, you provide a routing, and you just would have to provide a secondary net function.
0: Yeah, it seems like something that would be worth hacking if you can turn that on for purely debugging levels if you get reports for, this is broken, and here's the parameters we get with it. Well, it looks like we're getting close to an hour, so I want to give you the chance to plug any upcoming projects or things you've got working on. I think we talked in the pre-call that you had some stuff, so I figured I'd...
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm juggling a lot of projects right now. So first of all, mostly Erlang podcast. we got lots of great stuff coming up. At the end of this month, we have the, the podcast carnival, where we have a bunch of podcasts all talking about teaching kids to code. We've got six podcasts, including mine, Ruby Rogues, and a bunch of others. So if you're interested in this topic, or you have kids, or you are friends with kids, the other thing I'm working on is if you want to level up your Erlang I'm working on a series of short screencasts that'll be a subscription service, and that should be launching by the 1st of February, and it'll be sort of similar to Avdi Grimm's Ruby Tapas in sort of concept. So those are the projects that I'm actually sort of at this point pushing forward. I have a few more on the back burner, but unfortunately I only have so many hours in the day, even if I don't have to commute to work, because I, I work out of a spare bedroom in my house. <laughs>
0: You're making up for that two-hour commute you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Right? Oh, yeah. Well, that was like
1: more like four and a half hours a day for a really lousy job. Don't do that. The stupid thing is if I'd had a car, which I didn't, it would have been about a 50-minute drive each way. But I couldn't afford a car at the time because really pra- Israel makes having a car rather high, pricey.
0: Is there any resources? You mentioned you're building web applications with Erling Book. Yeah. Any other resources you would say check out for people interested in Erling?
1: Yeah, if you want to learn Erlang, the two best the best book you can find. Simon St. Lawrence's book, Introducing Erlang, is good. If you want sort of an in-depth, really get-you-everything introduction, or almost everything. Fred Hebert's book, Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good, really top-notch. You can buy it from No Starch Press, but it's also available on his website, learnyousomeerlang.com. The other thing is there's a series of conferences called Erlang Factory that floats around the world. Upcoming is San Francisco, which is like a three, two, three day conference. Munich, which is a light, which is a one day, and then Stockholm and there's other things that'll be happening there in the year. But they tend to pop up wherever there's a local community that wants to organize them. Talk to Monica at Erlang Solutions if you want one in your neck of the woods. And if you'd like to be to come talk to your user group somewhere as long as you're willing to pay my airfare I'd love to do it. But probably you can find somebody more local unless you happen to be in Israel, which is where I'm located. But but I'm still hoping somebody will pay my airfare somewhere cool. And by cool, I mean like Australia. So if if anybody out there is in the Melbourne airline user group, pay my airfare. Out. I got friends I can stay with. So you don't need to find me crash, you know, pay me for a hotel or crash space. I got that covered. I just fly me to Australia. No problem. Phone will any minute now. Any minute. All right. This is probably pre-recorded, so it probably won't. Any anyway, rate, I digress.
0: Okay. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to follow you in and-
1: Alright, so the best place is podcast is at mostlyerlang.com and I'm on Twitter at ZKessin Z as in, Z, Z as in zebra K-E-S-S-I-N and you can get that in the show notes. That's the most likely place you'll find me. I am sometimes on IRC in the Chicago Boss Channel as Zach in Israel and, and, and I'm easy to find. I, I turn up in other places too but almost inevitably under my real name so I'm easy to find. I have A 20-year tradition of only posting in the internet under my real name or something, at least reasonably identifiably me, under the theory that if I'm unwilling to say something and sign my real name to it, I probably shouldn't say it at all. keeps me out of trouble. You know, let's face it, we've all seen internet trolls, so...
0: I'll make sure to include all those references in the show notes. Get it linked up so people can find you, for them to contact you and find out more.
1: Great. Like I said, I also run a TED programmer these days on the Chicago Boss Framework which is a web-based framework for Erlang, so we'll uh, include that in links. All right, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. A giant thank you goes out to David Belcher for the logo, and once again, I would like to thank Zach for giving us time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. You too. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.